0: Well good morning. It's good to be here this morning. It's a blessing to be here. I want to I wanna commend you all, um, not in some ungodly way, but I'm very thankful for the way in which you all sing. Um, it's extremely encouraging to be able to hear um, these songs uh, and the way it resonates in the building. I don't know, all of it together is, is extremely uh, encouraging. I mean it seems as though every single person in this building from young to old is singing and that's a very, that's a very encouraging thing. Uh, this morning I'm going to do something uh, a little different. I only, have, I only have one point that I want to make, one overall point. Uh, now it may take a little bit of time to make that one point, but I only have the, the, the one. And my plan is actually to tell that one point uh, by telling a, a story. Um, I think a story that all of us can kind of resonate with, can connect with. Uh, I hope we're able to see ourselves in this story. And if you'd like to follow along with this story, it can be found in Genesis 1, uh, beginning in verse 1. It's the the story of the Bible we're going to talk through uh, this morning. One beautiful thing about the Bible is that it does reflect our lives. Thousands and thousands of years later, we can still see ourselves in these very scenes. But the Bible begins in Genesis 1 and verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What a beautiful way to begin the story. I mean, this is a verse that we're very, very familiar with. But God created the heavens and the earth. Everything in which we see, God has Created, But before God created the earth, we're told of the existence, whatever that really means, the existence was this wasteland. Certain versions say it was formless and void. And I believe the idea is that what you have there in Genesis 1 and verse 2 is this dark, watery, chaotic mess. That's where God is. God was still there in that mess. We're told in Genesis 1 that God's Spirit hovered over that mess chaos. And with his spirit, or his breath, the same word there, God spoke and he said, let there be light. And I love it, Genesis 1 verse 3 simply states, and there was light. God spoke it and it came into being. And using his spirit, his breath, he continues to create. He creates a place for water in the sky. He creates a place for water below. He gathers some of the water below and then dry ground begins to appear. And on that dry land, God creates more. He creates living things. He speaks and vegetation grows. Vegetation grows yielding seed and fruit of its own kind, giving it its own ability to be fruitful and multiply. And then in the heavens, God creates the sun, the greater light to govern the day, and he creates the moon, the lesser light to govern the night, and he creates the stars as well. But what's interesting about this order It's kind of strange because light existed after day one, plants, things in need of light, exist after day three, and then the greatest source of light, at least the way that we see it, the sun, isn't created until day four, so how does that happen? How do these things have light? Well, I think the implication is is that God is the source of light. God is the creator of light, and therefore he is the greatest light. The Lord is my light and my salvation, Psalm 27 and verse 1. God is the creator and therefore the ultimate source of light. And God provides light in the earth. And then in the waters below and in the expanse above, God creates more. He creates living uh, living things, creatures to fill the sea, creatures to fill the air, and then he speaks again, but this time not necessarily to create but to command in some way. He blesses these creatures and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1 in verse 22 much like the abilities of the vegetation before and then using his spirit his breath he speaks again and even more living creatures come into being animals of all kind and he says the same thing to them be fruitful and multiply God is creating everything that we see and then finally his final piece of his creation is different than the rest granted it comes into being in a similar way but he speaks and from the dust of the earth God creates man. He says that God creates man in his image. Now, this word image is actually a word that's used in other places that is interpreted as statue or even idol. The same word is being used there. So in a sense, we're like these little miniature versions of God. We are these little statues of God, which might shed some light on why we're told to not create idols in the image of God or of anything else, because we are his image. Idols if I can say it that way. We are His image. We bear God's image. So anything else, if if we were to create idols of anything else, then that would just be, well, a copy of a copy. Further and further removed from God's purpose. Further removed from God's truth. So as we create idols in whatever image we want to, even in this day and age, what we're doing is we are further and further separating ourselves from what God intended. We bear His image. And then from man's side, not from his head, not from his feet, perhaps signifying her equality with man, woman is created. And woman is created, and man immediately breaks out into song, which is funny, it kind of explains the last hundreds of years of music, right? He says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And the two of them are placed on this newly created ground, specifically this beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden. God has provided them with all of this, and then he blesses again in the same manner as he had done before. He says, be fruitful and multiply, only this time, he takes that a step further. To man, he tells them to take care of this garden. He gives them the authority to rule over the earth and all its living things. Uh, Genesis 2 and verse 15, man is told to cultivate, to keep, or to take care of this garden of Eden which God had created. And God then looks out on all his creation and he says, this is very good. And in day 7 it says that God rests. And I love the picture that you see at the very end of Genesis 2. The very end of Genesis 2, we're told that man and woman live together, that they are naked and they are unashamed. Mankind, I think this is what it's saying, mankind is in a perfect relationship with one another. Man and woman have a perfect relationship. Man is in a perfect relationship with God's creation. And man has a perfect relationship with God. But if you read in the very next verse, Genesis 3 and verse 1, this crafty beast of the field enters. Satan, or uh, the serpent of old who deceives the world, as he's called in Revelation 12 and verse 9. Satan, taking the form of a snake, I believe speaks to the woman Eve. And while God speaks to create, Satan speaks to create chaos where God had created order. And what's interesting is that Satan doesn't have the power to create things in his own being to make this disorder. He has to use God's creation to to make this disorder disorder. Because Satan is not God. He's not a God. He's nothing. But he creates chaos where God had created order. Satan speaks to Eve and even though she knows the one command that God had given, doubt creeps into her mind. Her attention is shifted from God to herself. And when she sees the tree of knowledge of good and evil and she sees all that it can do for her, that it is good for food, it's a delight to the eyes, it's desirable to make one wise, she took and ate. We looked at that concept a few weeks ago. She took and she ate. Now Adam can't, be, can't uh, be lit off the hook. He's right there, right? He's standing right next to Eve. Genesis 3 and verse 6 said that he, he's, he's standing right next to her, standing idly by, doing nothing to intercede, nothing to keep this great evil from happening. Nothing to take the lead. I think that's the implication in the curses that are passed out later in the chapter. He doesn't do anything like that. He does nothing to prevent this. He takes and he eats as well. So created through the words of Satan, Adam and Eve have become discontent with being images of God, but seem to want to assert themselves to be God themselves, to determine what is right and what is wrong for themselves. Uh, What Satan has done... It's created discontent. Are we ever discontent in our lives? And I mean discontent not in just wanting, wanting uh, more godly things or things like that, wanting things to be better, but we're discontent maybe with the status we have in our job. We're discontent maybe with how people uh, look at us at school or how, how our family looks at us or things like that. Are we ever wanting to bring more attention to ourselves and discontent in that regard? Well, I tell you, it is not God who has made you discontent. Now God has given us all that we need in order to be content. So ask yourself, where is that discontentment coming from? Well then realizing what they had done, they cover their nakedness and their shame with leaves, Uh, and hearing God in the distance, they hide from him, which is interesting, because the presence of God, God was there in the garden before, the presence of God, what I believe once was this comforting feeling, now is bringing about fear. And as a result of their sin, the ground which man cultivates is cursed. Now growing thorns and thistles, that which God created to give life and sustenance to man now works against Him. And as a result of their sin, the relationship between man and woman is cursed as well. Adam blames Eve for his sin. Eve blames God's creation for her sin. And now each are creating their own standard of right and wrong, creating what I think is the worst of all, mistrust. They now can no longer trust one another. The relationship that was once naked and unashamed has now been tainted with mistrust. And then the serpent, uh, Satan too, is, is, is cursed. It says that he is brought low and that he will eventually be crushed by the seed of woman. Eventually he will be crushed, but, that is not this day, in the final curse, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and like God said, because of their sin they are destined to die. It's not this instant death, God could have done that, but this eventual one having been separated from the tree of life. And even though God does provide life after this, God gives Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, sons, But we know we're not in Eden anymore. They've been cast out. The world still is cursed. The relationship between man grows worse and worse. And as Cain, the story of Cain, he kills his own brother out of pride and jealousy. And at the end of Genesis 4, the lineage of Cain just gets worse and worse. And you get this story of Lamech, this this man who takes on multiple wives for one, and then he boasts of killing a young boy where God had created order, now man is creating more and more chaos. And then in Genesis 5, Genesis 5, you get this fast forward. You get this, this, this montage of sorts. Except rather than the montages like, like are in movies where the main character is getting faster and stronger and wiser, what you see over and over like a beating drum in Genesis 5 is what? With every single birth comes death. Every single time. And then in Genesis 6, Man grows even worse. Every thought they have is evil continually. And then it says that God is grieved. So grieved that He brings about destruction. He chooses to de-create. God is sad and angry over what man has done. And He brings about destruction through the form of a flood. For 40 days, for 40 nights, the rain fell from the sky. God now has chosen to bring about the chaos. Echoing the language of Genesis 1 and verse 2, the earth now is this watery, chaotic mess again. But God is the one who has brought this into being. In the same way that God can speak order into being, God can speak destruction. And then in Genesis 6 and verse 21, we read that all living things on the earth died, Just as God has promised, death is brought into the earth because of man's sin. So the question I ask is, what, what can save man from this death? What can save man from God's destruction that he brings? Well, of course, God didn't destroy all living things, right? I assume people here are familiar with the story of Noah. Genesis 6 and verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the sight of of the Lord, because he was an upright and righteous man. And to protect him, his family, and the animals he's told to bring, Noah is told to build this ark. And on this ark, God would save him. It would serve as this temporary home, a temporary Eden, if you will, where God would give his protection. And after the rain ceased, Genesis 7 and verse 18 says that the ark hovered on the chaotic water like God's Spirit had done back in Genesis 1. And then like Genesis 1, what we see again is that God creates. In a sense, He creates life yet again. God begins to separate the waters, each in its place. Dry ground appeared. Birds are sent out into the air, a raven and a dove, to find land. And soon after land is found, we're told in Genesis 8 and verse 13 that Noah removed the cover from the ark and he looked, and I imagine memories of what the earth once looked like came flooding back into his mind, if you will. The evidence of God's wrath surrounded him. But I'd like to argue also the evidence of God's kindness surrounded Noah. Because even though there was great destruction that surrounded him, what had God done with the one upright and righteous man? He saved him. He preserved his life. Noah was saved from the sinful generation through the flood. He was saved from the flood through the ark. 1 Peter 3, verses 20 and 21 make special note of this. God would restore the earth again through Noah and his family. And then echoing back to day six of creation, man and animal go out onto the dry ground. And then Genesis 9 and verse 1, God blesses Noah, repeating those familiar words, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Creation comes to the earth again. In a sense, God has started over with this upright and righteous man. But even Noah and his family could not bring us back to Eden. At the end of Genesis 9, we get this really strange story where after the ark, Noah builds uh, this vineyard. He gets drunk, and then it gets even stranger with his son Ham. And we're not going to get into that detail because we don't know what happened. But what we do know, we are not in Eden anymore. We are far far from Eden. Man is still broken and shortly after God begins creation again God starts dishing out curses again like back in Genesis chapter 3. And then in Genesis 10 mirroring what we saw in chapter 5 we get to fast forward again through the genealogies of Noah's sons Ham and Japheth bringing us to Genesis 11 the story of Babel which is perhaps the, the quintessential story of rebellion. But I believe that this story actually takes place somewhere in the middle of chapter 10 in the middle of this genealogy where the great grandson of Noah Nimrod whose name literally means rebellion either him or maybe his descendants they settle in the land of Shinar a land that is later known as the great nation of Babylon a people that was told back in Genesis 9 to scatter and fill the earth what are they doing in Genesis 11 but they're grouping together and building a city. The exact opposite of what God had commanded them. Because as sinful people group together and multiply, so does their sin. Is that true today? As sinful people group together and multiply, so does their sin. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals every single time. And as these people group together, they use their their godlike ingenuity And they they create these bricks, and they're really proud of these bricks. With these bricks, they start to build their cities, and they build a tower. A tower, one that can reach the heavens. And they do this for what purpose? But for making a name for themselves. Otherwise, it continues in chapter 11, verse 4, otherwise we will be scattered. The very thing you were told to do at the beginning. The people are openly defying God's command, all for the purpose of making a name for themselves, wishing to make themselves God. Is this familiar at all? I mean, not only did we read this back in Genesis chapter 3, but, I mean, look out in the world today. What will people do in order to make a name for themselves? Just about anything. Mountains were often seen as places where God and man would commune. The the higher up you are, the closer you are to God. But of course, they're not gods. They can't create a mountain, so they create the next best thing, a tower. So maybe in one sense, this story could read like, well, they're just trying to get closer to God. They're just trying to commune with them. They just want to be closer to God. Is that how it reads? No. Again, they build this tower in order to make a name for themselves. No, the way that this reads is more like a storming of the castle of sorts. It's a coup. They're trying to overthrow God and assert themselves in that position. Again, as sinful people gather together and multiply, so does sin. But there's a turning point in this story. Genesis 11 verse 5 says that the Lord came down. The Lord came down. And once God comes down, all their planning, all their ingenious ingenuity is totally destroyed. They build a tower, God destroys it. They build a city, God scatters them. They unify. God confuses their language to where they could not unify again. Yet again though, we are left to ask, as man continues to do the same thing over and over, what can save man from this destruction? What can unify man but but for good? Well, following the story of Babel, we're told the genealogy of Noah's third son, Shem, and it's through this lineage that we get to Abraham. And it's through Abraham that God begins to restore mankind yet again. I believe the intent is that this restoration would happen through a chosen family, the family of Abraham. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, notice what God says. Notice God says, I will give you a land in which you will settle. I will give you a great nation. I will make you a great name. All the things that the people of Babel were trying to take for themselves, God says, no, I'm the one who's going to give it to you. I'm the one who's going to make you a great name. All the things that they wanted to do themselves, God is the one who provides. Look, as images of God, we can do a lot of great things, certainly compared to other creations that God has. We can think for ourselves, we can discover, we can create, we can create uh, music as we've been singing this morning. We can create art, we can, we can experiment, we can uh, uh, make technology, do things we never thought was possible. These are all things that we can do, but why? It's because of the image that we bear. That's it. God is one who makes us great. Now it's through Abraham's seed, or, or descendants, same word there in Hebrew, that God would bring blessings to all nations. And it's at this point, if you're reading Genesis for the first time, perhaps you start thinking to yourself, wait a second, seed. I've heard, I've heard that word before. I was told that a seed would crush the head of the snake, would crush Satan. Is this, is this that seed? Have we, have we gotten to that point in the story? Well, God did say that the seed would be great. He did say that it would be as numerous as the stars. He even said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So here we go. We've gotten to that point in the story. This is the seed that's finally going to bring an end to the body of death. This is the nation that's going to end this cycle of creation and destruction. Well, there certainly are some bright spots in the story of, of Israel, some great examples of faith. But if you're not familiar, as you read throughout the Old Testament, there's certainly more examples of sin. Uh, Because Israel is is God's chosen people, it's tempting to think of themselves as always the good guy in the story. But far too often, God's people are just as evil as the people around them. And so it doesn't take long for us to realize that this this is not how the world is going to be saved. They are following the same pattern that's been established in Genesis 1 uh, through 11. They begin rebelling again. They give their wives to foreigners. They sell their brothers into slavery. They complain to God for not delivering them from slavery in the way that they want to. Uh, They build an idol, a golden calf, as you see on the screen. Uh, They rebel against God's command. They take on multiple wives. They obscure justice. They take advantage of the poor. They adopt the religion of the other nations around them. And in that, they also adopt the practices of sacrificing their own children to the gods. They were supposed to to be the ones who bring the blessing to other nations. Yet they're becoming just as corrupt as they are. They become a stiff-necked people becoming the idols in which they created. So is Israel the seed that's gonna crush the head of the snake? No. No, destruction comes. Because of their constant rebellion and their failure to listen to God's warning uh, through the prophets, God allows foreign nations to take them. He takes His people into captivity. First, the northern tribe by using the powerful nation of Assyria as we looked at last week to take Israel And then through Babylon, taking the southern tribe of Judah. God's people are destroyed yet again. But despite their sins, God does promise to restore a remnant. Similar to how he made the rebellious generation in Moses' day, wander in the desert for a while, die off, and then a new generation would come back. He sends this rebellious people off into captivity, and he brings back a faithful remnant. Jeremiah 23 and verse 3 says, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture. And it says at the end of verse 3, echoing back to the days of creation, it says, Or bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply." God is beginning this stage of creation again. He is giving a new beginning for His people. Fourth time's a charm, right? This time it's going to work. Well, over time, and it should be no surprise at this point, that rebellion creeps in again. Um, The exile teaches Israel uh, nothing, and they become just as rebellious as before. The book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, tells us that they were giving the worst of what they had to God, they adopted the practices of their pagan wives, and they took advantage of the poor, and all of these things were endorsed by their leaders. Just like before. So at this stage, in the pattern, what comes next but destruction, right? Well, before we get there, the Old Testament, I believe, makes very clear that man is in desperate need of saving because of their own sin. Man needs saving. And though the Old Testament is often viewed as a a picture of God's wrath, and it certainly shows us that. We should not shy away from that. But throughout the Old Testament, it shows a picture of God wanting to restore His people. I mean, look back to the very first story that we looked at. After Adam and Eve sin, God comes down, and does He kill them right away? No, he, He comes down with a series of questions. Right? He wants to ask him a few questions, almost as if he's seeking confession from them. At least seeking to show some uh, form of compassion. In the next story, even before Cain kills his brother, what does God do? He comes down and he says, look, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Don't let him in. God wants to keep Cain from doing that. And even after Cain does kill his brother, God comes down again, but does he come down to kill Cain? No, he asked him a series of questions again. Almost as if he's seeking a confession, seeking to show compassion. Then in the middle of that chapter of death we read in Genesis chapter 5, I stood up here and said that every single person in that chapter dies. But you all know that's not true, right? There's a person in the middle of that chapter, Enoch. Enoch walked with God. What does God do with him? But he takes him with him. A person who chose to walk with God escapes this death. Then 1 Peter 3 verses 18 through 20 talk uh, in, in a little bit more detail about the ark. Something we don't read about in Genesis chapter 6. But it tells us that even then, God was showing patience to this sinful generation. A generation that every thought was evil continually. God was even showing patience to them. That Christ through Noah or perhaps Christ himself proclaimed salvation to them. It would seem that even then, God did not wish that all should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's that's just the first six chapters of the Bible. God is constantly trying to restore His people. And then, even throughout the generations of Israel, God sought to restore them. He sent godly prophets who spoke up and tried to tell them about how they could be saved. But these prophets spoke of a particular one who would restore God's people. This ruler, uh, the king from the line of Judah, he's called. Moses spoke of a prophet that would, that would come and save and deliver the people much like Moses did. The prophet Amos speaks of God restoring Israel through this one and allowing Gentiles to even bear the name of the Lord. Jeremiah speaks of one who would restore Israel, that he would bring about this new covenant, but it would be written on their hearts. Isaiah speaks at length about this servant on whom the Spirit of the Lord would descend. A servant that would atone for the sins of the people. A servant who would preach the gospel to the poor, set free the captive, restore sight to the blind, free those who are oppressed, and proclaim the favorable day of the Lord. The prophet spoke of one who would come. So what comes next? Who can end this cycle of creation and destruction? Who can save mankind from this body of death? Well Peter speaks of this in Acts chapter 3 Acts chapter 3 beginning verse 24 says all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. All the prophets spoke of the day that this Christ, this servant, would come and he would redeem the people. God would raise up this servant and he would turn people away from their wicked ways. They wouldn't do those things anymore. But he speaks of this man much more specifically in the chapter prior. He says at the end of this great sermon, he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him this servant, both Lord, that is, Master, and Christ, this Redeemer, this Jesus, whom you crucified. You know the ones all the prophets spoke about? It was Jesus. This is the one who's going to bring you back. And then using the Scriptures as, as, as proof uh, throughout the book, the writer of Hebrews talks about it in Hebrews 10 and verse 10. He says, By this we will be... We, By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That story we talked through before, did we see anything about purity being sanctified? Did we see a group of people that were sanctified? No. But through Jesus Christ, it could be done once for all. Verse 11, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Did Did you get a sense of perfection in that story before? Did you get a sense of perfection in that cycle? No, what you get is God trying to restore people and people constantly going against. There's no perfection there, but through Jesus we can have perfection. Romans 5 and verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you get a sense of peace in that story? Verse 11, and not only this, but we also exalt God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That which Israel needed over and over and over is now provided through Jesus. There can be true reconciliation through Jesus. And then finally, in Romans chapter 7, as Paul reflects on his own sin, he recognizes the terrible state that he's in and he says, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? That's the question we've been begging all morning. The answer is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way that we are going to be saved from this endless cycle it's through Jesus. Genesis 1-11 through 11 shows us a pattern of creation, rebellion, and destruction. And this pattern serves as, as a template really for the rest of Scripture in an endless cycle of life and death. But just like the turning point was in the story of Babel, uh, in, in Genesis 11 and verse 5, it said, the Lord came down. John 1 tells us That Jesus came to His own. That God came to His own. The Lord came down. Only this time it wasn't necessarily to bring destruction, but to reverse this curse of death for those who truly desire to walk with God. The Lord came down in the form of Jesus. The only one who can save us from this body of death. So my one point that I want to make this morning, the one thing that I want us to see and understand more deeply, that we need Jesus. Every single one of us here. I hope you see yourself in that story somewhat. I know I've seen myself many times in my life going back to the same thing that brought about destruction, the same thing that has made my life confusing and miserable at times. The only thing that can save you from that is Jesus. Apart from Him, our life will only end in death, just like God promised from the beginning. But you must be willing to walk with God as Enoch did. You can't just continue living in the same way you lived before. You must submit to Him. You must give your life over to Him. You must count the cost of what it means to be a disciple, but realize that you are getting everything in return. Go ahead and read Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount. Look at that and see what a person of God, a person of this kingdom that He is providing, does. But understand that if you follow Him, you will be saved from death. You'll be saved from that endless cycle. just want to encourage those. if If you aren't familiar with the Bible... I strongly encourage you to read it, to talk to someone about it. Talk with me about it. I would love to sit down and read the Bible with you. There are many people here. Talk to Bob, talk to the elders, talk to somebody. We would love to read about this story, the story of Jesus with you. But if you know who Jesus is, and you know that you have not committed your life to him, what are you doing? Commit your life to Him. Do not wait. Jesus is the only way that we can be saved. If you have any need of this invitation, please come up now while we stand and while we sing.